We now continue with the second half of the 2021 Opinion of the Court in Google LLC v. Oracle America, Inc. Part 4 The language of Section 107, the Fair Use Provision, reflects its judge-made origins. It is similar to that used by Justice Story in Folsom v. Marsh. That background, as well as modern courts' use of the doctrine, makes clear that the concept is flexible, that courts must apply it in light of the sometimes conflicting aims of copyright law, and that its application may well vary depending upon context. Thus, copyright's protection may be stronger where the copyrighted material is fiction, not fact, where it consists of a motion picture rather than a news broadcast, or where it serves an artistic rather than a utilitarian function. Similarly, courts have held that in some circumstances, say, where copyrightable material is bound up with uncopyrightable material, copyright protection is thin. Generically speaking, computer programs differ from books, films, and many other literary works in that such programs almost always serve functional purposes. These and other differences have led at least some judges to complain that applying copyright law to computer programs is like assembling a jigsaw puzzle whose pieces do not quite fit. These differences also led Congress to think long and hard about whether to grant computer programs copyright protection. In 1974, Congress established a National Commission on New Technological Uses of Copyrighted Works, C-O-N-T-U, CONTU, to look into the matter. After several years of research, CONTU concluded that the availability of copyright protection for computer programs is desirable. At the same time, it recognized that computer programs had unique features. Mindful of not unduly burdening users of programs and the general public, it wrote that copyright should not grant anyone more economic power than is necessary to achieve the incentive to create. And it believed that copyright's existing doctrines for example, fair use, applied by courts on a case-by-case basis, could prevent holders from using copyright to stifle innovation. Congress then wrote computer program protection into the law. The upshot, in our view, is that fair use can play an important role in determining the lawful scope of a computer program copyright, such as the copyright at issue here. It can help to distinguish among technologies. It can distinguish between expressive and functional features of computer code, where those features are mixed. It can focus on the legitimate need to provide incentives to produce copyrighted material while examining the extent to which yet further protection creates unrelated or illegitimate harms in other markets or to the development of other products. In a word, it can carry out its basic purpose of providing a context-based check that can help to keep a copyright monopoly within its lawful bounds. Justice Thomas's thoughtful dissent offers a very different view of how and perhaps whether 
fair use has any role to play for computer programs. We are told that no attempt to distinguish among computer code is tenable when considering the nature of the work, even though there are important distinctions in the ways that programs are used and designed. We are told that no reuse of code in a new program will ever have a valid purpose and character, even though the reasons for copying computer code may vary greatly and differ from those applicable to other sorts of works. And we are told that our fair use analysis must prioritize certain factors over others, even though our case law instructs that fair use depends on the context. We do not understand Congress, however, to have shielded computer programs from the ordinary application of copyrights limiting doctrines in this way. By defining computer programs in Section 101, Congress chose to place this subject matter within the copyright regime. Like other protected works, that means that the owners of computer programs enjoy the exclusive rights set forth in the works, including the right to reproduce a copyrighted work or to prepare derivative works. But that also means that exclusive rights in computer programs are limited like any other works. Just as fair use distinguishes among books and films, which are indisputably subjects of copyright, so too must it draw lines among computer programs. And just as fair use takes account of the market in which scripts and paintings are bought and sold, so too must it consider the realities of how technological works are created and disseminated. We do not believe that an approach close to all or nothing would be faithful to the Copyright Act's overall design. Part 5 At the outset, Google argues that fair use is a question for a jury to decide. Here, the jury decided the question in Google's favor, and we should limit our review to determining whether substantial evidence justified the jury's decision. The Federal Circuit disagreed. It thought that the fair use question was a mixed question of fact and law, that reviewing courts should appropriately defer to the jury's findings of underlying facts, but that the ultimate question whether those facts showed a fair use is a legal question for judges to decide de novo. We agree with the Federal Circuit's answer to this question. We have said fair use is a mixed question of law and fact. We have explained that a reviewing court should try to break such a question into its separate factual and legal parts, reviewing each according to the appropriate legal standard. But when a question can be reduced no further, we have added that the standard of review for a mixed question all depends on whether answering it entails primarily legal or factual work. In this case, the ultimate fair use question primarily involves legal work. Fair use was originally a concept fashioned by judges. Our cases still provide legal interpretations of the fair use provision, and those interpretations provide general guidance for future cases. This type of work is legal work. Applying a legal fair use conclusion may, of course, involve determination of subsidiary factual questions 
such as whether there was harm to the actual or potential markets for the copyrighted work, or how much of the copyrighted work was copied. In this case, the Federal Circuit carefully applied the fact-slash-law principles we set forth in U.S. Bank, leaving factual determinations to the jury and reviewing the ultimate question, a legal question, de novo. Next, Google argues that the Federal Circuit's approach violates the Seventh Amendment. The amendment both requires that the right of trial by jury be preserved and forbids courts to re-examine any fact tried by a jury. The re-examination clause is no bar here, however, for, as we have said, the ultimate question here is one of law, not fact. It does not violate the re-examination clause for a court to determine the controlling law in resolving a challenge to a jury verdict, as happens any time a court resolves a motion for judgment as a matter of law. Nor is Google correct that the right of trial by jury includes the right to have a jury resolve a fair use defense. That clause is concerned with the particular trial decision at issue. Even though it is possible to find pre-revolutionary English cases in which a judge sent related questions like fair abridgment to a jury, those questions were significantly different from the fair use doctrine as courts apply it today. As far as contemporary fair use is concerned, we have described the doctrine as an equitable, not a legal, doctrine. We have found no case suggesting that application of U.S. Bank here would fail to preserve the substance of the common law jury trial right as it existed in 1791. Part 6. We turn now to the basic legal question before us. Was Google's copying of the Sun Java API, specifically its use of the declaring code and organizational structure for 37 packages of that API, a fair use? In answering this question, we shall consider the four factors set forth in the Fair Use Statute as we find them applicable to the kind of computer programs before us. We have reproduced those four statutory factors. For expository purposes, we begin with the second. A. The Nature of the Copyrighted Work The SunJava API is a user interface. It provides a way through which users, here the programmers, can manipulate and control task-performing computer programs via a series of menu commands. The API reflects Sun's division of possible tasks that a computer might perform into a set of actual tasks that certain kinds of computers actually will perform. Sun decided, for example, that its API would call up a task that compares one integer with another to see which is larger. Sun's API, to our knowledge, will not call up the task of determining which great Arabic scholar decided to use Arabic numerals, rather than Roman numerals, to perform that larger integer task. No one claims that the decisions about what counts as a task are themselves copyrightable, although one might argue about decisions as to how to label and organize such tasks. As discussed above, 
and in Appendix B, we can think of the technology as having three essential parts. First, the API includes implementing code, which actually instructs the computer on the steps to follow to carry out each task. Google wrote its own programs, implementing programs, that would perform each one of the tasks that its API calls up. Second, the Sun Java API associates a particular command called a method call with the calling up of each task. The symbols java.lang, for example, are part of the command that will call up the program, whether written by Sun or, as here, by Google, that instructs the computer to carry out the larger number operation. Oracle does not here argue that the use of these commands by programmers itself violates its copyrights. Third, the Sun Java API contains computer code that will associate the writing of a method call with particular places in the computer that contain the needed implementing code. This is the declaring code. The declaring code both labels the particular tasks in the API and organizes those tasks, or methods, into packages and classes. We have referred to this organization by way of rough analogy as file cabinets, drawers, and files. Oracle does claim that Google's use of the Sun Java API's declaring code violates its copyrights. The declaring code at issue here resembles other copyrighted works in that it is part of a computer program. Congress has specified that computer programs are subjects of copyright. It differs, however, from many other kinds of copyrightable computer code. It is inextricably bound together with a general system, the division of computing tasks, that no one claims is a proper subject of copyright. It is inextricably bound up with the idea of organizing tasks into what we have called cabinets, drawers, and files, an idea that is also not copyrightable. It is inextricably bound up with the use of specific commands known to programmers, known here as method calls, that Oracle does not here contest. And it is inextricably bound up with implementing code, which is copyrightable, but was not copied. Moreover, the copied declaring code and the uncopied implementing programs call for and reflect different kinds of capabilities. A single implementation may walk a computer through dozens of different steps. To write implementing programs, witnesses told the jury, requires balancing such considerations as how quickly a computer can execute a task or the likely size of the computer's memory. One witness described that creativity as magic practiced by an API developer when he or she worries about things like power management for devices that run on a battery. This is the very creativity that was needed to develop the Android software for use not in laptops or desktops, but in the very different context of smartphones. The declaring code, inseparable from the programmer's method calls, embodies a different kind of creativity. Sun Java's creators, for example, tried to find declaring code names that would prove intuitively easy to remember. They wanted to attract programmers who would learn the system, help it to develop further, and prove reluctant to use another. 
Sun's business strategy originally emphasized the importance of using the API to attract programmers. It sought to make the API open and then compete on implementations. The testimony at trial was replete with examples of witnesses drawing this critical line between the user-centered declaratory code and the innovative implementing code. These features mean that, as part of a user interface, the declaring code differs to some degree from the mine run of computer programs. Like other computer programs, it is functional in nature. But unlike many other programs, its use is inherently bound together with uncopyrightable ideas and new creative expression. Unlike many other programs, its value in significant part derives from the value that those who do not hold copyrights, namely computer programmers, invest of their own time and effort to learn the API's system. And unlike many other programs, its value lies in its efforts to encourage programmers to learn and to use that system so that they will use and continue to use Sun-related implementing programs that Google did not copy. Although copyrights protect many different kinds of writing, we have emphasized the need to recognize that some works are closer to the core of copyright than others. In our view, for the reasons just described, the declaring code is, if copyrightable at all, further than our most computer programs from the core of copyright. That fact diminishes the fear expressed by both the dissent and the Federal Circuit that application of fair use here would seriously undermine the general copyright protection that Congress provided for computer programs. And it means that this factor, the nature of the copyrighted work, points in the direction of fair use. B. The Purpose and Character of the Use In the context of fair use, we have considered whether the copier's use adds something new with a further purpose or different character, altering the copyrighted work with new expression, meaning, or message. Commentators have put the matter more broadly, asking whether the copier's use fulfills the objective of copyright law to stimulate creativity for public illumination. In answering this question, we have used the word transformative to describe a copying use that adds something new and important. An artistic painting might, for example, fall within the scope of fair use even though it precisely replicates a copyrighted advertising logo to make a comment about consumerism. Or, as we held in Campbell, a parody can be transformative because it comments on the original or criticizes it. For parody needs to mimic an original to make its point. Google copied portions of the Sun Java API precisely, and it did so in part for the same reason that Sun created those portions, namely to enable programmers to call up implementing programs that would accomplish particular tasks. But since virtually any unauthorized use of a copyrighted computer program, say for teaching or research, would do the same. To stop here would severely limit the scope of fair use in the functional context of computer programs. Rather, in determining whether a use is transformative, 
We must go further and examine the copying's more specifically described purposes and character. Here, Google's use of the Sun Java API seeks to create new products. It seeks to expand the use and usefulness of Android-based smartphones. Its new product offers programmers a highly creative and innovative tool for a smartphone environment. To the extent that Google used parts of the Sun Java API to create a new platform that could be readily used by programmers, its use was consistent with that creative progress that is the basic constitutional objective of copyright itself. The jury heard that Google limited its use of the Sun Java API to tasks and specific programming demands related to Android. It copied the API only insofar as needed to include tasks that would be useful in smartphone programs. And it did so only insofar as needed to allow programmers to call upon those tasks without discarding a portion of a familiar programming language and learning a new one. To repeat, Google, through Android, provided a new collection of tasks operating in a distinct and different computing environment. Those tasks were carried out through the use of new implementing code designed to operate within that new environment. Some of the amici refer to what Google did as re-implementation, defined as the building of a system that repurposes the same words and syntaxes of an existing system. In this case, so that programmers who had learned an existing system could put their basic skills to use in a new one. The record here demonstrates the numerous ways in which re-implementing an interface can further the development of computer programs. The jury heard that shared interfaces are necessary for different programs to speak to each other. It heard that the re-implementation of interfaces is necessary if programmers are to be able to use their acquired skills. It heard that the reuse of APIs is common in the industry. It heard that Sun itself had used pre-existing interfaces in creating Java. And it heard that Sun executives thought that widespread use of the Java programming language, including use on a smartphone platform, would benefit the company. Amiki, supporting Google, have summarized these same points, points that witnesses explained to the jury. These and related facts convince us that the purpose and character of Google's copying was transformative, to the point where this factor, too, weighs in favor of fair use. There are two other considerations that are often taken up under the first factor, commerciality and good faith. The text of Section 107 includes various non-commercial uses, such as teaching and scholarship, as paradigmatic examples of privileged copying. There is no doubt that a finding that copying was not commercial in nature tips the scales in favor of fair use. But the inverse is not necessarily true, as many common fair uses are indisputably commercial. For instance, the text of Section 107 includes examples like news reporting, which is often done for commercial profit. So even though Google's use 
was a commercial endeavor, a fact no party disputed. That is not dispositive of the first factor, particularly in light of the inherently transformative role that the re-implementation played in the new Android system. As for bad faith, our decision in Campbell expressed some skepticism about whether bad faith has any role in a fair use analysis. We find this skepticism justifiable as copyright is not a privilege reserved for the well-behaved. We have no occasion here to say whether good faith is, as a general matter, a helpful inquiry. We simply note that given the strength of the other factors pointing toward fair use and the jury finding in Google's favor on hotly contested evidence, that fact-bound consideration is not determinative in this context. C. The amount and substantiality of the portion used. If one considers the declaring code in isolation, the quantitative amount of what Google copied was large. Google copied the declaring code for 37 packages of the Sun Java API, totaling approximately 11,500 lines of code. Those lines of code amount to virtually all the declaring code needed to call up hundreds of different tasks. On the other hand, if one considers the entire set of software material in the Sun Java API, the quantitative amount copied was small. The total set of Sun Java API computer code, including implementing code, amounted to 2.86 million lines, of which the copied 11,500 lines were only 0.4%. The question here is whether those 11,500 lines of code should be viewed in isolation or as one part of the considerably greater whole. We have said that even a small amount of copying may fall outside of the scope of fair use, where the excerpt copied consists of the heart of the original work's creative expression. On the other hand, copying a larger amount of material can fall within the scope of fair use, where the material copied captures little of the material's creative expression or is central to a copier's valid purpose. If a defendant had copied one sentence in a novel, that copying may well be insubstantial. But if that single sentence set forth one of the world's shortest short stories, quote, when he awoke, the dinosaur was still there, unquote. The question looks much different, as the copied material constitutes a small part of the novel, but the entire short story. Several features of Google's copying suggest that the better way to look at the numbers is to take into account the several million lines that Google did not copy. For one thing, the Sun Java API is inseparably bound to those task-implementing lines. Its purpose is to call them up. For another, Google copied those lines not because of their creativity, their beauty, or even, in a sense, because of their purpose. It copied them because programmers had already learned to work with the Sun Java API's system, and it would have been difficult, perhaps prohibitively so, to attract, 
programmers to build its Android smartphone system without them. Further, Google's basic purpose was to create a different task-related system for a different computing environment, smartphones, and to create a platform, the Android platform, that would help achieve and popularize that objective. The substantiality factor will generally weigh in favor of fair use, where, as here, the amount of copying was tethered to a valid and transformative purpose. We do not agree with the Federal Circuit's conclusion that Google could have achieved its Java compatibility objective by copying only the 170 lines of code that are necessary to write in the Java language. In our view, that conclusion views Google's legitimate objectives too narrowly. Google's basic objective was not simply to make the Java programming language usable on its Android systems. It was to permit programmers to make use of their knowledge and experience using the Sun Java API when they wrote new programs for smartphones with the Android platform. In principle, Google might have created its own different system of declaring code, but the jury could have found that its doing so would not have achieved that basic objective. In a sense, the declaring code was the key that it needed to unlock the programmer's creative energies, and it needed those energies to create and to improve its own innovative Android systems. We consequently believe that this substantiality factor weighs in favor of fair use. D. Market Effects The fourth statutory factor focuses upon the effect of the copying in the market for or value of the copyrighted work. Consideration of this factor at least where computer programs are at issue, can prove more complex than at first it may seem. It can require a court to consider the amount of money that the copyright owner might lose. As we pointed out in Campbell, verbatim copying of the original in its entirety for commercial purposes may well produce a market substitute for an author's work. Making a film of an author's book may similarly mean potential or presumed losses to the copyright owner. Those losses normally conflict with copyright's basic objective, providing authors with exclusive rights that will spur creative expression. But a potential loss of revenue is not the whole story. We here must consider not just the amount, but also the source of the loss. As we pointed out in Campbell, a lethal parody, like a scathing theater review, may kill demand for the original. Yet this kind of harm, even if directly translated into foregone dollars, is not cognizable under the Copyright Act. Further, we must take into account the public benefits the copying will likely produce. Are those benefits, for example, related to copyright's concern for the creative production of new expression? Are they comparatively important or unimportant when compared with dollar amounts likely lost? We do not say that these questions are always relevant to the application of fair use, not even in the world of computer programs. 
nor do we say that these questions are the only questions a court might ask. But we do find them relevant here in helping to determine the likely market effects of Google's re-implementation. As to the likely amount of loss, the jury could have found that Android did not harm the actual or potential markets for Java SE, and it could have found that Sun itself, now Oracle, would not have been able to enter those markets successfully whether Google did or did not copy a part of its API. First, evidence at trial demonstrated that regardless of Android's smartphone technology, Sun was poorly positioned to succeed in the mobile phone market. The jury heard ample evidence that Java SE's primary market was laptops and desktops. It also heard that Sun's many efforts to move into the mobile phone market had proved unsuccessful. As far back as 2006, prior to Android's release, Sun's executives projected declining revenue for mobile phones because of emerging smartphone technology. When Sun's former CEO was asked directly whether Sun's failure to build a smartphone was attributable to Google's development of Android, he answered that it was not. Given the evidence showing that Sun was beset by business challenges in developing a mobile phone product, the jury was entitled to agree with that assessment. Second, the jury was repeatedly told that devices using Google's Android platform were different in kind from those that licensed Sun's technology. For instance, witnesses explained that the broader industry distinguished between smartphones and simpler feature phones. As to the specific devices that used Sun-created software, the jury heard that one of these phones lacked a touchscreen, while another did not have a QWERTY keyboard. For other mobile devices, the evidence showed that simpler products, like the Kindle, used Java software, while more advanced technology, like the Kindle Fire, were built on the Android operating system. This record evidence demonstrates that rather than just repurposing Sun's code from larger computers to smaller computers, Google's Android platform was part of a distinct and more advanced market than Java software. Looking to these important differences, Google's economic expert told the jury that Android was not a market substitute for Java's software. As he explained, the two products are on very different devices, and the Android platform, which offers an entire mobile operating stack, is a very different type of product than Java SE, which is just an application's programming framework. Taken together, the evidence showed that Sun's mobile phone business was declining, while the market increasingly demanded a new form of smartphone technology that Sun was never able to offer. Finally, the jury also heard evidence that Sun foresaw a benefit from the broader use of the Java programming language in a new platform like Android, as it would further expand the network of Java-trained programmers. In other words, the jury could have understood Android and Java SE as operating in two distinct markets.
And because there are two markets at issue, programmers learning the Java language to work in one market, smartphones, are then able to bring those talents to the other market, laptops. Sun presented evidence to the contrary. Indeed, the Federal Circuit held that the market effects factor militated against fair use, in part because Sun had tried to enter the Android market. But those licensing negotiations concerned much more than 37 packages of declaring code, covering topics like the implementation of Java's code and branding and cooperation between the firms. In any event, the jury's fair use determination means that neither Sun's effort to obtain a license nor Oracle's conflicting evidence can overcome evidence indicating that, at minimum, it would have been difficult for Sun to enter the smartphone market even had Google not used portions of the Sun Java API. On the other hand, Google's copying helped Google make a vast amount of money from its Android platform, and enforcement of the Sun Java API copyright might give Oracle a significant share of these funds. It is important, however, to consider why and how Oracle might have become entitled to this money. When a new interface, like an API or a spreadsheet program, first comes on the market, it may attract new users because of its expressive qualities, such as a better visual screen or because of its superior functionality. As time passes, however, it may be valuable for a different reason, namely because users, including programmers, are just used to it. They have already learned how to work with it. The record here is filled with evidence that this factor accounts for Google's desire to use the SunJava API. This source of Android's profitability has much to do with third parties, say programmers, investment in Sun Java programs. It has correspondingly less to do with Sun's investment in creating the Sun Java API. We have no reason to believe that the Copyright Act seeks to protect third parties' investment in learning how to operate a created work. Finally, given programmers' investment in learning the SunJava API, to allow enforcement of Oracle's copyright here would risk harm to the public. Given the costs and difficulties of producing alternative APIs with similar appeal to programmers, Allowing enforcement here would make of the Sun Java API's declaring code a lock limiting the future creativity of new programs. Oracle alone would hold the key. The result could well prove highly profitable to Oracle or other firms holding a copyright in computer interfaces but those profits could well flow from creative improvements, new applications, and new uses developed by users who have learned to work with that interface. To that extent, the lock would interfere with, not further, copyright's basic creativity objectives. After all, copyright supplies the economic incentive to both create and disseminate ideas, and the re-implementation of a user interface allows creative new computer code to more easily enter the market. 
The uncertain nature of Sun's ability to compete in Android's marketplace, the sources of its lost revenue, and the risk of creativity-related harms to the public, when taken together, convince that this fourth factor, market effects, also weighs in favor of fair use. The fact that computer programs are primarily functional makes it difficult to apply traditional copyright concepts in that technological world. In doing so here, we have not changed the nature of those concepts. We do not overturn or modify our earlier cases involving fair use. Cases, for example, that involve knockoff products, journalistic writings, and parodies. Rather, we here recognize that application of a copyright doctrine such as fair use has long proved a cooperative effort of legislatures and courts, and that Congress, in our view, intended that it so continue. As such, we have looked to the principles set forth in the Fair Use Statute, Section 107, and set forth in our earlier cases, and applied them to this different kind of copyrighted work. We reach the conclusion that in this case, where Google re-implemented a user interface taking only what was needed to allow users to put their accrued talents to work in a new and transformative program. Google's copying of the Sun Java API was a fair use of that material as a matter of law. The Federal Circuit's contrary judgment is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings in conformity with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the Contact tab. Until next episode, Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.